Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proskauer podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antoshik. Newberger Berman is one of the world's largest asset managers. The firm has a broad range of investment capabilities, and its success is due in part to its culture. As such, the firm has maintained an incredible 97% retention rate among its senior investment teams since 2009 and has been recognized for its distinctive culture. Susan Kasser is the head of Newberger Berman's $13 billion private debt business. Culture is at the center of her investment strategy, her secret sauce. Susan joins me today to discuss what values she believes are crucial to building a top-tier investment team and how she has built her team around those values. We also discuss the relationship between perceived risk and actual risk and how private credit will be tested over the next 12 months. You'll find a full transcript of this episode as well as links to other useful information at privatemarkettalks.com. Susan, welcome to Private Market Talks. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are here today to talk about culture and the importance of culture at Newberger Berman and in particular to you in building the private debt group of Newberger Berman. Can you tell me why it's important? Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's interesting. Sometimes people can get into the habit of thinking a team is a collection of individuals or a collection of mini teams. And I think that especially with investing, what the investors are looking for is truly a team effort. And that's actually really hard to do because investors are individualistic and opinionated, all of which is good. And getting a bunch of individuals to work together as a team is quite difficult. And so culture becomes important. And the other thing that I think is especially true about credit investing is credit investing is actually all about not making mistakes Mm. as opposed to being the most clever person in the room. And I think culture is really important about that also, because I think a lot of people feel that they want to do the hardest thing or the most clever thing. And again, in credit investing, that's not really what your investors want. They just want you not to make mistakes. Right, right, right. And so what are the key attributes in a culture that you were building at Newberger Berman's private credit group? I sometimes like to quote NYPD in the subway, right? So if you see something, say something. And that I think is where this challenge of turning individuals into a true team kind of comes to play. So I've certainly seen people develop my deal syndrome. So that can have two negative effects. One negative effect is, well, it's my investment, my deal. I sourced it. I worked on it. And so if you criticize it, you're criticizing me. And then that can make any kind of difficult conversation, just much more difficult. Sure. And then the other thing I've sometimes seen happen is people say, well, there's such a scarcity of opportunities. Don't get in my business. I won't criticize yours if you don't criticize Mm. mine. And then I step back again and I think, okay, if we're approaching this from the lens of what are the investors looking for here? They're not looking again for us to not criticize each other's opportunities. They're not looking for people to get personal about their work. They're just saying, please do a good job and please don't make mistakes. And so you've got to be able to separate between what you're working on and who you are. Or as I like to say, it's much more important to do the right thing than it is to be right. So there's a sense of humility to, you know, the investing culture. Yeah. And also, I guess, creating a safe place where people feel they can express their opinion, but in a way that they won't be criticized 
for expressing their opinion. Yes, I think that's right. I think that both those words are really important. So, and I would add maybe one more, which is a fiduciary duty, right? So, or, or a sense of mission. So the first part is if you can make it not about yourself, then it's not about yourself. Mm -hmm. So if you remember whose capital it is that you're investing and what they want you to do with it, that can help give you some amount of distance. I think the humility part is really important, right? Understanding that no matter how hard this investment opportunity was to source and how hard you worked on it and how diligent you were, maybe there's something you didn't think of mm -hmm. and that's something that your colleague is asking. And then this idea of safety is really important too because you could assemble a team of people who are quite collaborative and do have opinions and aren't defensive when people disagree with each other. But if they're in an environment where they feel that they're competing with each other, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's for promotion or compensation or growth or capital to invest or attention even or, or space, right. then you turn a collection of really talented individuals through a scarcity mindset into more of a competitive environment. And so again, you force people to think like individuals. And so culture is both, did we pick the right people? But then, as you said, with this idea of safety, did you create an environment where they can be their best collegiate, right. cooperative, collaborative selves? There's a lot of C's. Yeah, as opposed to competitive, <laughs> right. as opposed to competitive right, selves. Right, right, right. How do you go about fostering that kind of environment? Well, let's hope I'm doing a good job. So we do think about it a lot. We think about it in the interview process. So I think like most people, we run a case study as part of the interview process. And we have people present the case study live and we disagree with them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the temperature is a little bit warmer in the disagreement. You have to be careful because there's a real power dynamic, you know, when you're interviewing somebody and they're being interviewed, right? So it's not a fair environment. But sometimes you can test pretty quickly if people can keep a distance mm -hmm. from this investment opportunity versus get defensive. And then we try to do a whole host of things that keep people close to the investor or close to the mission. So one of them is um, we don't allocate relationships just to one individual. Newberger Berman is very different in the direct lending space because Newberger Berman is also a private equity fund investor. Mm -hmm. So we're direct lenders. But when we're calling on a private equity fund to say, hey, can we help you finance an acquisition? They know that we're also calling as their LP investor. Right. And so that gives us, again, back to humility. No matter how great your relationship is with this private equity fund, understand that that relationship is built on our colleagues' investment right. as a limited partner. So you're doing a good job in your seat. Right but you didn't do the whole job yourself. Right. It's so not this, all about you. Yes, exactly. This relationship does not belong solely to you. It was right. not built solely by you. Yeah. In fact, it was built by a collection of people at Newberger and a collection of businesses, mm -hmm. all based on the capital our investors give us to invest, whether it's on the direct lending side or the LP fund investing side. So that's one thing that helps maintain distance. Another thing is we don't rank and compensate people based on dollars invested. Mm. Uh, because one of the things that we like to talk about with our investors is we say no an awful lot. Mm -hmm. We're here to preserve your capital. If we can invest it and preserve it, we will. But if we right. have to pick between the two, we'd rather not invest it and preserve it mm -hmm. than invest it and maybe risk it. And I think that that's hard to say if at the same time 
people know that they're compensated based on how many dollars they deploy a year. Mm -hmm. We don't have deployment budgets for that reason. And then another thing we try really hard to do is to bring as much of the team as possible in contact with the underlying investors so that they really appreciate we're not making these decisions in a conference room because it's an intellectual right. exercise, right. right? We're investing the capital of pensioners yeah. and of insurance companies and of foundations. Right. And that, you know, that's as sacred a mission, I think, as you can get in finance. It's interesting. So you're, you're really bringing them in contact with your investor and it makes it very real. Yeah. for them as opposed to being you know two or three steps away from you know who the customer is if that's you right you talked about the hiring you talked about the compensation are there other things that you do to foster and maintain that type of culture I think another element that I've thought about more over time is one of the important things about being a private investor so in in our case a private credit investor is the investors entrust you with the capital for a long period of time, right? We have these lockup vehicles. And that's wonderful because it gives you the ability to be very patient and very selective, right? So we talked about this capital preservation orientation. Mm -hmm. But it also means that the investors are trusting you for periods of time that could be a decade, mm -hmm. right? So investment periods are not that long, but the total fund vehicle could last a decade. And when you think about building something to last a decade, you have to start thinking a lot more about redundancy mm. and succession and planning because, you know, 10 years is a really long time. And of course, right. you don't think any individual investment will be out for that long, but a vehicle could be outstanding for that long. And so that's another thing that we try to do. And I think, again, it helps with humility and it helps with collaboration and partnership is we don't leave any important responsibility in just one person's hands, mm -hmm. right? So multiple people are involved in relationships with investors. Multiple people are involved with relationships with private equity funds and sourcing opportunities. Multiple people are involved with investing. Multiple people with monitoring, et cetera. And we do explain to people that part of what we're looking for in terms of success is, are you coaching, mentoring, and developing other people on the team? Mm -hmm. So you started this, well, what, how long ago now? 10 years ten, ago I was now. Say, I just had my 10 year anniversary. I they sent you was, a fleece. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was 10 years because it raises the point that you just said, which is 10 years is an important timeline, if you yeah. will. And creating opportunity for others within the organization is important. So how do you think about it in your role? When I was hired at Neuberger to build this private debt business, I had actually not built a private debt business before. Mm -hmm. I was a senior investment professional at a competing firm, and I had been an investment professional in private debt for about a decade. And I had done related things earlier in my career. So I had an awful lot of experience, but my experience did not lend itself directly to founding a business and right. raising capital and being a portfolio manager. I had not done those things before. I had sourced and diligenced and made investments and monitored investments and restructured investments. Mm -hmm. So I think honestly, at the beginning, uh, well, first, my biggest motivation was to get hired because I really wanted this job. Right. So right. that took some doing. And this is at a time when Neuberger Berman did not have a 
private credit platform, if I recall, right? They was, didn't have, you know, what we were calling the private debt business. They yeah, didn't yeah. have a direct lending business. Yes. What they did do was they had come to the realization based on their fund investing business, mm -hmm. and they have, and have had for a long time, a equity co-investing business. Sure. They came to the conclusion based on those two businesses that indeed direct lending was a great place to be, right? If you like the equity, oftentimes you would like the debt. Mm -hmm. And that being a limited partner in the funds gave you a wonderful seat to source those opportunities. Right. So they had been doing some of them, but they didn't have a dedicated team. Right. They were using people who worked on fund investing and co-investing, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes a lot of sense. And they didn't have dedicated capital. So they had a pool of capital that was kind of go anywhere and they were using that. So right. they had tested out the thesis, Got it. right? Which is we like this asset class, we're good at this asset class and we have a sourcing advantage at this asset class. Right. But now they were making an investment. Hey, let's build a business focused on this asset class, right? right. Which means dedicated investment professionals and then raising capital specifically dedicated to this. And so you started interviewing this and had no background <laughs> <laughs> and building a private yeah. credit platform. How did that process go? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I got a piece of advice at one point from somebody very close to me who said that when you are looking for your next opportunity, if you're getting on too well in the interview processes, you probably didn't aim big enough for that next Oh, role, interesting. which was actually really difficult advice to hear because mm -hmm. as everybody and anybody who has looked for a job knows, it's extremely stressful and volatile mm -hmm. and unpredictable. And so to be thinking, oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting to the final rounds and I turn this down for this. And but, you know, I'm pretty close. And to be told, actually, that is a sign that you're not aiming high enough. Right. You know, that's a tough pill to swallow, but it's great advice because I refocused my search from, oh, I'd like to be a senior investment professional, mm -hmm. uh, which would have been a lateral move to, no, I think I'd like to be the portfolio manager. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely a tougher leap to make. Right. And then over time, you evolved into the role that you are now at. And, and, and so now it's 10 years later. Mm -hmm. This is where we started. It's 10 years later. And you said as an important part of culture is creating opportunity for others. So how is that working for you? And how do you implement that as you are now 10 years down the road? Yeah. So some of it's orientation. So, so sometimes I think about friends of mine who went to start businesses, right? So not like I did to start a business at an established asset manager, but really people who worked in startups. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my friends saying that the thing with a startup is that if you don't work really hard every day, it might die. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning, when you're starting something new, even if it is within an asset manager that has made a multi-year commitment to this initiative, you still start with, oh my gosh, we're a bunch of entrepreneurs. We're a bunch of founders. We're just trying to make this real. Yeah. And so the challenge really is let's just make this real. Mm -hmm. Let's get it big enough. Let's win our first investor. Let's win our second investor, right. et cetera, right? Like, let's let's make this real. And then at some point, pretty quickly, I think for me, a lot of the motivation shifted to tremendous gratitude to those first investors. Mm -hmm. So 
I did want this job as a portfolio manager, and especially at Newberger Berman, very badly. Mm -hmm. And of course, I never would have gotten it without Newberger Berman deciding to take a risk on somebody who was a little less proven. Mm -hmm. And also my boss, Tony Tutrone, who runs Alternatives, taking a chance on somebody who's a little less proven. Mm -hmm. But in reality, that's just the opportunity to see if it will work. Mm -hmm. Without those first investors, it's still right. just an idea or it's still just an opportunity. So being really grateful to them and making sure that you didn't do anything, and you here is a plural, that would ever make them regret that decision, right? Because at the time, there's always somebody else they could have invested with. It's right. not like we were the first people to, in to invent the asset class. Right. Do you think you could, do you think someone could follow the same path today? Yes. And the reason I ask that question is because the market has changed so much. It's, yeah. In other words, private credit has exploded as an asset class. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it's matured. I think it has still a fair way to go, but it has, I would say it has grown up into its late teen, early 20s, let's call it that way. And so the funds have gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. The deal's larger. It's a more complex business to run. So I guess my my question is is you know do you think that that your unconventional path, if you will, could be followed by somebody today? I, I think so. I think that you would have to have a reason to exist. I think the market is receptive simply because as much as the market has grown in ten years it probably will double again. Mm -hmm. And so in that kind of environment, that's a high growth environment. Mm -hmm. That's favorable for new entrants. Uh, it just is. That said, it's very helpful to have a differentiating reason to exist. And so the reason most people can start a new business is because they've done that before. Mm -hmm and they're just doing it someplace else, or it's a different combination of people coming together. And that wasn't my story, right? I had been an investment professional, but I had never been a portfolio manager before. But for us, we had the competitive differentiation of being an LP investor in the funds and being a direct lender, mm -hmm. which nobody had done in any sort of size before. Right. And it's, it's a beautiful competitive advantage because it's understandable. People, people get the rationale of why you would have a sourcing advantage if right. you're also a limited partner. People can verify it pretty easily. Just call the private equity funds and ask them. Mm -hmm. And it's explainable. So if somebody said, why are you picking this manager for your private debt allocation versus this manager, you can explain that competitive advantage. And people would say, oh, that's reasonable, as opposed to a competitive advantage that might be difficult to articulate. Right. So it might be good, but it's hard to convey. Yep, yep, that's yep. not great. So I can't, at this moment, think of a different competitive advantage, but I bet that there is some super yeah. entrepreneurial, motivated, ambitious investment professional out there who's like, wait, I have thought of a way to do it better, yep. and I'm going to go out there and try it out. So looking, looking back over the 10 years so far, what do you think you've done right, and what would you have done differently? I guess what I would say is it's less done right and would do differently. It's more recognition of something pretty wonderful that with the benefit of hindsight is even more valuable than I expected. So I've only worked at private employee owned firms. Mm -hmm. I worked at Goldman when it was private. I worked at Carlisle when it was private. And I work at Newberger Berman, which is employee owned. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of employee owned firms, particularly when the ownership is diverse as it is at Newberger, 
is that they can be exceptionally long-term oriented. Mm -hmm. And the beautiful part about Newberger specifically is it only does one thing. It's just an asset manager. Mm -hmm. We don't have a strategic partner, owner, et cetera. We're not accountable to public shareholders. And so there's this commitment to only one thing, which is if we do right by investors, everything will work itself out. Mm -hmm. And we can commit to doing that with a very long-term orientation, not Mm -hmm. a quarterly orientation or an annual orientation. And so the reason that this is so important is as a new portfolio manager who was very focused on not making any mistakes, not giving our initial investors any cause for concern, or regrets, I think it's fair to say that when you approach investing that way, you're erring very much on the side of caution, Mm -hmm. right? Which means that you're investing more slowly because you're investing more carefully. You're doing everything more slowly. Mm -hmm. And so that means you're not scaling. You're not scaling revenue at the pace that you could because Mm -hmm. you're deliberately holding it back to be as close to perfect as possible. And I think at another firm, the powers that be might have been impatient, Mm. right? Like we've made this investment. It's this rapidly growing asset class. It's doubling every year. Why aren't you doubling every year? And I never heard that, not once, not from anybody. Um, And then when you step back, particularly post-COVID, right? The shutdown was a true test for the asset class. And you look back at performance, indisputably, if you're incredibly careful with your investments, you should have more pristine performance. And if you've built more carefully and taken your time, actually, I think you're in a position to really grow in the future. But it's almost like you're holding yourself back at the beginning to get everything dialed, and then you can move much faster in the future. But I think a lot of other firms wouldn't have had the patience for that. And so I'm endlessly grateful that I was given the space to build the way I thought one was supposed to. Well, I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier, the importance of culture and how it how it permeates the investment strategy. Yeah. And now I think that you talked about how COVID was a, was a test for private credit. I think we're in a in a test period now, don't you think, in terms of what the economy is doing. I'm not even sure at this point what it's doing, but yeah. you know, it, it's a test, isn't it? it? It is a test. And and it's funny because I've been having those conversations with investors where I say, look, uh, COVID was a great example in the sense that nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, but I am willing to wager that nobody built a portfolio expecting a pandemic and an economic shutdown, mm-hmm. right? We expect things like recession, We don't, historically, we have not expected things like a pandemic and economic shutdown. Now, fast forward, we can add to that inflation, Mm -hmm. which unless you were investing in the 70s or outside of the United States, you have not experienced Mm -hmm. uh, cost pressures, labor shortages, and very high interest rates, which for our asset class is both a positive and a challenge. It is an excellent test of a portfolio manager, because I think the best test of a portfolio manager is not, hey, how did you handle the risks that everybody is focused on all the time, but more how did you construct your investment process and your investment philosophy and your discipline and your portfolio for all the things that nobody saw coming because nobody could have possibly seen them coming. And right now, or maybe give it another 12 months, but Right now to 12 months from now is the perfect test 
for a portfolio manager against that very high standard. So you think that there'll be there'll be some winners and losers? I think that, yeah, I think there will probably be more return dispersion than there has been. But I also feel very grateful that we're in an asset class, right? Senior secured, mm-hmm. top of the stack, variable rate, big equity cushions under you, at least in our portfolio, all the companies are owned by high quality private equity sponsors right. who have the ability and the motivation to address problems head on mm-hmm. with sweat equity and with cash equity. And so it is a protective asset class. I don't think that you'll see the return dispersion you'll see in equities, private, public, venture, et cetera. But probably you'll see more return dispersion between managers than you've seen in the past. Well, certainly something that we'll keep an eye out for. I just have a, a couple of additional questions. This has been an interesting conversation. What talent do you think you possess that is underrated by everyone else. So I have what I like to call a golden retriever mentality, which is my take <laughs> on the goldfish mentality. So all of us in athletics, I right, totally are familiar. I totally get it, by the way. I have a golden retriever myself. So. It's like they're very, they wake up every day and they say, Happy. yeah, what wonderful thing is going to happen today? And I think that that, by the way, it's genetic. I did not inculcate this. It runs in my family. I don't want to take credit for it. But I think that really helps in so many environments, right? So sales. Right? You're trying to raise money mm-hmm. for a first close, for a first fund, for a first time portfolio manager. It helps to be able to wake up every day and say, maybe today somebody will be our first investor right. because it's going to take a while before you get one. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing for any kind of difficult investing environment. Right, It helps to go to sleep and wake up and have an automatic reset button. Right. We start off this by just talking about rock climbing. Yes. And I'm kind of curious now that we've talked about your career a little bit and the culture, the culture in your group and Newberger more broadly. I'm kind of curious what you take from climbing, if anything, into your job. I love that question. <laughs> um, I usually don't admit to people that I'm a rock climber because they associate it with risk taking. But actually, I think rock climbing is all about preparation and measured risk. And so one great example is um, for most climbing, if you get up, you have to come down. So you're going to rappel down or you're going to hike off the back and you need to have a plan for that. Right. And you've not successfully finished an objective until you're safely back at your car, Right. which is exactly the same thing for investing. Until you've realized the investment and given the capital back to the investors, you haven't done your job. But people spend so much time thinking about the first part because it's the glamorous part, right? The money went out. I right. got up the objective. But until you're home safe or the capital has been safely returned, you actually have not done your job. So it is an important reminder to people that investing, which is what people are so focused on, is really only 50% Mm -hmm. of the work. And then I think another thing that's super important is, again, this idea of preparation. So one of my friends says, nobody rises to the occasion you default to your level of preparation or your level of training. And that, again, it's it's especially noticeable when things aren't going well. Mm -hmm. So I think having experience stressing yourself some and then keeping it together, right? Figuring out a plan. What's the next move? You don't need eight moves. Just what's the next move? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's good preparation for people. What was one of the most stressful moments you've had climbing, if you will? Well, so you'll love this. Uh, I'm actually afraid of heights now. Oh, gosh, so am I. Yeah, so so it's an unusual <laughs> yes. hobby that we both share. To be 
willfully coming off the ground when you don't really want to be high up. So I actually think the funny thing about climbing, especially on a rope in a controlled situation, right? So short objectives, four hours, good weather, et cetera, is uh, the gap between perceived risk and actual risk is actually pretty Mm. big. Mm. So I contrast that to- Interesting say downhill mountain biking. Uh Some people might also enjoy downhill mountain biking. If you come off your bike, probably something's gonna bruise or break. If you come off a climb and you're on a rope, the rope's gonna catch you. So it feels very frightening, but actually it's quite safe. And so I think, especially as a credit investor who's so focused on not making mistakes, climbing is perfect because you get to experience this perceived risk Mm. exacerbated by being concerned about heights. But in reality, right, if you let go, you slip, et cetera, the rope's going to catch you. Yes. So you're kind of working on mental discipline without actually having to risk physical disability. Sure. It's sort of like collateral, having collateral. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's your safety net. Yeah. (laughs) My my last question for you is, what have you bought recently for under $100 that brought brought you the most joy? Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. (laughs) I don't know if it costs less than $100. I mean, I buy the 10-pack punches to the bouldering gym, but (laughs) I bet the 10-pack costs more than $100. But each visit is less than $100. (laughs) Well, uh, listen, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming in to speak with us on Private Market Talk soon. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and we'll see you next time. 